Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Kivaya. We're about to launch into an absolutely fascinating conversation about schedules of reinforcement. And if that sounds a little dry and academic, don't worry, it's going to be a really, really fun topic. Our guide for this exploration of schedules of reinforcement is Dr. Joe Lang. This is a topic that is anything but simple, so we are lucky to have such a great guide. I'm never sure how to introduce Joe, especially since this is a podcast about horses, and Joe is definitely not a horse person. He's a behavior analyst. He has over 50 years of experience in experimental and applied analysis of behavior. Joe earned his PhD in behavioral science at the University of Chicago, and at Chicago, he investigated animal models of psychopathology. He contributed to the discovery and characterization of contingency adduction, and Joe has extensive clinical behavioral analysis experience. So if you have a horse whose behavior puzzles you, Joe's perspective and understanding of nonlinear contingency analysis may offer some insights into the dynamics you're dealing with. Joe also has worked extensively on the design of learning environments, so that should be of particular interest to all of us. He developed the technology that forms the basis of the award-winning and patented Early Reading and Reading Comprehension online program. That's Headsprout, and he has published over 50 articles. I could go on to list many more of his professional credentials, but instead I'll say that Joe was one of the regular presenters at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. That's where I first met him. Joe's talks were always, for me, one of the highlights of the conference. In part, because he always pushed me to look at familiar concepts through a different lens. I always think of Joe as better than Google. During any conversation, he'll rattle off at least half a dozen references that need to be explored. You'll discover very quickly what I mean by that as soon as we get started. Joe has been our guest before. We've had several podcasts with him, and we've talked about contingency adduction, nonlinear analysis, the effect of schedules on social behavior, and one of my favorite topics that Joe has just amazing insights about is degrees of freedom. If this list sounds very dry and way too academic for your taste, don't worry. Joe is a wonderful storyteller. He really makes the, the science come alive. In Every conversation that we've had with Joe, he has always left us with a teaser. But in this case, he begins with a teaser. Our plan was to talk about reinforcement schedules, but Joe jumped in chatting about private experiences. Typically, I edit out the preliminary conversations, but in this case, they were just too much fun not to share. So yes, we are going to talk about schedules of reinforcement, but first we're going to indulge in a ramble down several rabbit holes. 
came across something you might be interested in. I went on a two-hour ramble the other day in, in my lab at Endicott on private experience and so on. Fairly complex topic. I've actually gone into an analysis of the works of Helen Keller. Oh, and, and, you know, she never heard a word in her life. Right. She never saw. Well, she saw. That's not quite true. Up until the time she was almost two, she had hearing and seeing. She got meningitis, and that wiped out her hearing and seeing. Yes. At a little age two. But she talks about, to age seven, she had no sense of being, of, of awareness or consciousness or anything like that. There was nothing that she could describe because she had no way of describing it, so she can't describe it. And that she lived in this kind of world of reactivity. It shows you then that, that consciousness and so on is not simply an emergent property of the brain because it didn't emerge in her. Right. <laughs> and the it, it, it comes from what Skinner talked about in terms of the social interactions and being asked questions about yourself. And once that began to occur with her and Annie Sullivan, that's when consciousness came online for her. I mean, it maps exactly onto what Skinner was talking about. And the, and it was, it's pretty fascinating because, you know, she doesn't think in words and she doesn't think in sights and sounds. <laughs> she thinks in textures and textures, right? Yeah. And the, in that sense. And so it's, it's really pretty fascinating if you go back and, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, it's the basis of some vocal speech. Well, she never had that. Right. So obviously that's not necessary. <laughs> and so the, she rules that right out. I mean, this is a woman who's conversant in five languages. Wow. And, you know, she founded the ACLU. And I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah she's the founder of the ACLU. Wow. And she she was on the FBI watch list because they thought she might be too far left. And she and she also flew an airplane at one point. <laughs> so this is a pretty accomplished woman for yes. having some vocal speed <laughs> and so on, you know. <laughs> and the, and the way she had to describe it, though, interestingly enough, she had to use the score sheet or means that you know were imposed upon her by a seeing and hearing community. Yes. So it's it was really. <clears throat> could see in her works a struggle to use the words to describe an experience not captured by the words. You may have just talked yourself into another podcast joke because, <laughs> because this it's is really, so... It's really quite fascinating. And, the, and some of the research then that has gone on in this area shows that private experience isn't what people think it is. And the... And, but we are given words to describe which, you know, you, you can't train anyone to describe a private event because there's no access for discrimination training. <laughs> so it's all, you know, so, I mean, there is no access to it. You can't tell if the green I see is the same as the green you see. That's right. What you accept is in the presence of certain wavelengths, I say green. But what I see is totally unknown. Yeah. Right? right. Uh, so, so you know, a verbal response green in, in, in the presence of certain wavelengths is what's reinforced, not seeing green. Right. And as a matter of fact, there's research that shows that when people are asked to adjust to green, they'll come up with a whole range of different shades between people. 
So you adjust this, you know, color until it's until it looks green to you. And oh, that's you know, okay, that's green. The next person does the same thing, different shades. Yeah. Right. But if they have to match it, like here's a green piece of color, right? I put a green swatch out there. Now match it so it's green. They'll match it perfectly, everybody, right? So, yeah. so they will match to an external sample where you adjust a, and you know it gets a little lot more green, a little less green, a little more green, and tell them match it. Yeah, that's it, and it'll match. But so take I can that teach away. You that if I hold up this green swatch, and I right. say this is green, it's not red, it's not blue. This is green. Right. Now match it. I can teach you what that you word. Match that. Yeah. Mean. In other words, you can match wavelength to wavelength. Right. So the, the the original person who declares that this color swatch is green yeah. that becomes the dictator of the universe. Yeah, exactly. But you can take those same people, pull that out, and just say, turn this to it looks green to you. Yeah. And there'll be all sorts of different shades of green. And this is also why with what we call color discrimination in the horses and people will say, so do horses see green? And it's like... They see something. They see something. Exactly. <laughs> right. Oh, I don't wow. know what they're seeing, but they can make a discrimination between this object and that object for whether they are seeing what I call green or you call you, green isn't have relevant. You ever, have you ever read Jacob Van Uxalt's work on, it's called A Stroll Through the Perceptual Worlds of Animal and uh, Animals and Man, I think it's called? No. I'll send it to you. Okay. I have it. And the and it was written in 1934. And it's still, I think, a, a state of the art in terms of it. And he investigated how different organisms, animals in particular, saw the world versus humans. And he's got a same scene as seen by a dog, as seen by a human, as seen by a housefly, yeah, and so on. And it's totally different worlds they live in, right? Bees, for example, live in a very different world because they respond to ultraviolet light. And what people fail to realize is that basically the Earth is one large blackness that sits on it with absent, uh, but it's that blackness, that void, if you will, if not blackness, a void, is filled with electromagnetic radiation. And we respond to some dimensions of the electromagnetic radiation, and other organisms respond to others. And so this is what evolution has resulted in us living to reproduce based upon the ones we respond to. <laughs> yes. So it's not like this is the world versus a different world. It's it's our world, but it's not the world. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And yeah. And it's, so it's a, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. That's why I always get a kick out of all this alien stuff. You know, all the aliens see this beautiful blue globe with water. Like, well, not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wait a minute. You know, how do you know the way what wavelengths they respond to? You know, what you know, what's you know, this is this is why I I I don't really believe that these flying saucers are extraterrestrial things because they evolutionarily, why would they follow even a similar track to what we did? Yeah. You know, so but that's a that's not schedules of reinforcement. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> but it is interesting. So I think you yeah. may have just talked your way into another afternoon's um, conversation because there's so much relevance to training well you know it goes back to you know i mean we assume so much our anthropomorphizing when it comes to animals because we extend 
what we say about what ourselves to the animals. But when you find out how little you can say about yourself <laughs> yeah. with any type of, of, you know, accuracy, if you will, and or, or verifiability, then then you see that it's kind of a, a, a fruitless venture to do that. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a very good book out done last since 2020, The Immense World by Jung, mm-hmm. I think, which is looking at again at how different animals, how they perceive the environment. And it is fascinating and extraordinary because, of course, they now have the technology to explore this that the person in 1834 would not have had. 1934. 1934. It's still 1934. We have a lot more technology to explore it. And um, what animals are capable of perceiving and over distances that they are capable of perceiving right. is just, just totally mind-bending. Right. And the, uh, yeah, I mean, the olfactory world of a dog yeah, is something that there is no way that we can, the only way we can describe it in terms of numbers, like parts per billion, but that's it. We can't describe it in terms right. of the effect on the dog, right, uh, really. And the so it's and and what that results in how the dog interacts with that environment. Coppinger, are you familiar with Coppinger, the, the famous yeah. dog? He did one. He and his wife did an experiment back in the early '80s, where they took a, a particular type of dog that had a long snout and pointed ears and so on, and they looked at its behavioral characteristics of that breed and so on, and then just for the fun of it. Well, they had, I don't think it was just for the fun. It was part of a research program, but right. it was part of the fun. They bred them. And every batch, every generation, they would take the ones with the shorter noses and the little longer ears and breed them with the ones with the shorter noses and little longer ears. And over a period of, of several generations, they actually bred a snout, a short-nosed, floppy-eared dog. And that's all they based their criteria was these physical features, nothing else, no behavioral features, no hunting instinct or prey instinct or any of this kind of stuff, no temperament. And they found out that the dogs now became much more (laughs) Labrador-like. They became, their personalities changed dramatically. Their temperaments changed. That these were a function of the morphology of the animal and how it came in contact with its environment, not an inbred temperament. Interesting. And that they said when animal breeders breed on temperament, what they find is that certain morphological characteristics are really what's selected. And they've said the pointed nose dogs, nose are, are closer to the ground typically, and they have thinlier legs and they can crouch easier. Like the other dogs tend to have thicker legs. Yeah. That also is what, we, what came along with the thicker nose, with thicker legs. And what they show is that they retain puppy-like characteristics into adulthood, a process called neoteny, right. where you have infantile characteristics carried into adulthood. And that's what they're really shaping, right? So the, in other words, the, the development didn't run its same course. And so you get thicker legs. And so, so the nose wasn't as close to the ground. So they're not, 
as as they're they're more up in the air getting the in the air the sniffs rather than close to the ground the ears weren't up and alerting to all the sounds and were down so there was different contact and then what they were saying was that there's an entirely different world that resulted in the dogs behaving according to those requirements of that new stimuli and how they can interact with it interesting they wrote about this in a special issue in the early 1980s in the smithsonian magazine they had a, and i think the 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 name of the article was a dog in sheep's clothing because they they were talking about like great pyrenees and so on that looked like sheep yes and what, and what they found was interestingly enough how most of these big sheep dogs not the herding type but you know the protecting type in the yeah. pyrenees mountains and so on interestingly enough were raised with the sheep from six weeks of age they put them in with the sheep and so they learned just to hang out with the sheep and basically play with the sheep. And the sheep were their brothers and sisters from their point of view, I guess. Well, when a wolf would come up, one of these dogs would look at the wolf. And what it would do, what they described in the article was great, is run out to play with the wolf. And so from the wolf's point of view, here's this big sheep. <laughs> rises up out of his sheep herd. who's was laying around, barking and bounding at them, going, woof, woof, woof. And the wolf runs, which reinforces that behavior in the dog. Yep. And the dog says, "Oh boy, we're playing the game." And so now, when the wolves come, they're really out. They're really alert, and they learn to smell them. And they come running right out as soon as the wolf's there. They're not actually. They said, for the most part, the dogs don't protect with violence. They protected with play. Mm. Fascinating. And it was yeah, it was a great article. And the yeah. and I can remember it had a big impact on me because it was the the notion of how morphology changes, you know, behavior and so on, and brings you into contact with the different environments and that the and and what we consider temperament and so on is a byproduct of some of these variables and how we come in contact with the environment. And <laughs> so, in the human case, environments are often brought to the person. You know, it's a very interesting. As a matter of fact, there's a woman called Yvonne Brackbrill, who, and this is how I, this is how I think. I put all these divergent things together. You know, uh, Yvonne Brackbrill did a study on sex differences in neonates and male and female X X X X Y chromosome. We'd say today probably <laughs> and to be politically correct, but the what she found was that in her studies, there were different sleep-wake cycles between the, the genders, different sweet taste preferences, and different responses to being held and fussiness, with the boys being more fussy, and so on. So the mothers would put them down and so on and not hold them the same. And so she had this whole thing on sex differences and so on, and she was well, really well known for. She got so well known that she was given a one of these fellowships to go to Europe, and like at Oxford or something. And she decided to replicate her study in Europe. Yeah. Results fell apart, and she looked at now why is it that I get these results in the United States? And I looked at thousands of kids, and not just a couple hundred. Same in Europe, and it fell apart. And she looked at what could possibly be the difference. The difference is 85 or more percent of the male babies in the United States were circumcised. Not true in Europe. And she found 
that all of these differences could be attributed not to circumcision per se, but to surgical intrusion. So even female babies who had an operation for one reason or another showed these characteristics, but they were so infrequent that, you know, in a big statistical pool. But when you narrow down to, okay, how about just those females that had surgical intrusion? Yeah, they showed the same result. And Mm -hmm. so in other words, it's surgical intrusion within the first few days of life result in these patterns and they're carried over for 60 weeks. And so the differences were not genetic, but purely environmental. It's fundamentally very similar to a morphological change that has a a different way of being. And so now when the baby's fusses a little bit and the mother puts it down, the mother's less likely to pick it up. And so that whole interaction they found and studied was altered for the next several weeks for over a year. Sweet tastes were different. Preferences were different as a result of that surgical intrusion. Even how something tasted to to the baby in terms of its preferences was altered. Startle response was altered. That makes sense. There's a range of things that they had that were altered as a result of the surgical intrusion. And the so it was really pretty fascinating studies that she did. So you really have to rethink every every assumption yeah. that has ever come across your path <laughs> yeah. in terms of all of this. And it, it makes me think of Panda, the, the mini that I trained to be a guy. She's very small. She's just under 30 inches at the withers. So this is a very small horse. She is truly dog size. She has always had the most solid response to the environment of any horse that I had worked with up to that point of knowing Panda. She Mm -hmm. just was not reactive to the environment. Just really solid, easy to work with, very bold, very brave. Two weeks into her training, I was giving a talk in downtown Boston at the Prudential Center, which is you know one of those big skyscrapery things. And Panda went with me. She was 10 months old. And she's going with me into a very modern building, going over marble floors, up and up in an elevator. You know, all of these things that we typically would not be expecting a horse to be comfortable with. She was totally at ease with it. And I always thought, this is just extraordinary, just extraordinary. We, we got so lucky in having such an extraordinary individual. And then I started to meet more minis, really mini minis, and they were all like her, yeah. all cut from the same cloth. Right. So it was like, all right, what is, what is it about being a really small horse? I would almost expect them to be more reactive, to feel more vulnerable because they're little, not bolder and braver. And, and I thought, what an interesting experiment it would be to take these minis and breed them up so that you got a full-size horse. And right. would you continue to have that amazing probably not. <laughs> And you say, probably not. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> and you could go the other direction. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and take a highly reactive, some of these really, you know, thoroughbreds that are at edge all the time and breathe them down and see what happens. Yeah. And the, of course, you know, given the gestation periods of horses, you have to be patient to do that experiment. Yes, you do. <laughs> it's not like fruit flies. <laughs> no, 
or even dogs. <laughs> All right. I have one final story before we get to. to okay. This, I was at a, a Jerry Hurst, who was a very, very famous behavioral geneticist. I was invited to his, he had a, he's retiring. And so they're having an honorary dinner and speeches and so on. And Jerry got up and spoke about his first humbling experience in behavioral genetics. He had a maze, a vertical maze, where you had an entry and then you had two entries. So the fly could either go up to this one or down to this one, like okay. two little tubes. And then it was like horizontal for a while. And then they had another choice point. They could go down or they could go up. So he bred flies that tended to go up to flies <laughs> that tended to go up. Now, fruit flies, this is actually, you can do this pretty quickly. <laughs> and sure enough, he got it so that they put the flies in never before being in the apparatus mm -hmm. and they would gravitate to the top. Another group, he bred the other direction. You put them in and they gravitate to the bottom. And so he showed a genetic predisposition to going up versus going down. And that could be a train. And he shows that that behavior could be genetically. <laughs> so he applied for the big grant based upon this. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is great work. I gave him his grant. So he said, I'm going to build an even better apparatus. It's going to be, you know, I'm going to have it so it goes higher, you know, and, and, and so on. And I'm going to be able to collect data better on it and so on. So he built this new apparatus. <laughs> he takes his flies, <laughs> throws them in the new apparatus, and they go everywhere. They didn't go up and they didn't go down. They went everywhere. He took the ones trained to go down. They went everywhere. And he goes, what? He takes the size, puts them back in his old apparatus. They go up and the other group goes down. And he goes, what? What could be possibly different? Mm -hmm. And he looks at his apparatus. And he goes, oh, the apertures that they traveled through was slightly larger on the new apparatus. And just that small change in the environment wiped out all the, the so-called genetically programmed behavior. A slight change in the environment. Right. So what he said is you can select for change environment, but you change that environment a little bit and all your work is gone. Which is an interesting thing to discover. Right. No, it was yeah, it was great. No, that's actually more interesting than the fact that they went up and went down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he said it was a very humbling, you know, it was like terrifying. And I'm one the experience, he said, because it said, man, was I, oh my God, did I, did I, did I just report something that's, that can't be replicated? But when he put them back in the original device, they worked fine. So yeah, no, he got the results under the conditions of his first device. Hmm. But you yeah. stick them in a new environment and bingo, it falls apart. So work on behavioral genetics has to be very, hmm. in terms of how extension extensible it is into what environments which does lead us beautifully into reinforcement schedules yeah <laughs> because so i remember i have to one... ask a question first yes. that, that whole first part is not going to be part of the podcast is it <laughs> who knows right. if you would rather it wasn't it doesn't have no, to I, be well it's just that i'd like to elaborate more i mean there's just so much to be filled in in, in, the, in the pieces there and, and so forth, but it's but, up to you. I personally find the ramblings really interesting mm -hmm. and it makes me hungry and eager for more. And I think that's a good state to be in. 
All well, right. I already you know, have three pages of notes, so yeah. there must have been and, something there. Right. And lots, lots right. and lots of questions and wanting to say, you know, bring us more, bring us more. But it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Well, I just I just don't been around for a long time and spent <laughs> a lot of time reading diverse stuff. So yeah, the, well, <laughs> but that's the fun of it because this, that's also how you discover new things that are worth reading. If I I so miss the old fashioned card catalogs at the library. You know, where you pull out the drawer and you'd be thumbing through to get to the book that you wanted. But, oh, wait a minute. What is this book? That sounds interesting. Exactly. exactly. that doesn't happen. I couldn't agree anymore. Or just walking down the stacks. Yes. Looking at the books and wow, oh, I, that looks interesting. Yeah. You pull it out. And, it was, and I, I have so many books that I came across just that way. Yeah. Mm. So many things. In journals, the same way. Journals and journal articles. Going through and pulling, just pulling out a, an issue and all of a sudden you see, wow, there's two articles here that, you know, wow. You yes. know, and the, uh, I think that's how I found the Yvonne Brackbill article. And that was in the 1970s, was in doing something like that in the library. Yeah. <laughs> Just stumbling this, across it. This whole, what am I going to, to read next or look at next or explore next? I think it's, right. so the ramblings have value. and right. And you don't know that you... You don't know that you have questions about this or that this is something that is worth exploring or questioning until you, you know, you happen to be the fly on the wall for a rambling conversation like that. Because right. otherwise we would just say, oh, well, this is how it is and we don't need to question it. But it does take us very much to the reinforcement schedules because there are all kinds of assumptions that are being made when people are setting up laboratory experiments right and i remember at one of the art and science uh conferences you did a presentation and this was a long time ago and i and i'm very fuzzy on the details but you wrote out a, a reinforcement schedule but then you said when do you start a new cycle do you start it immediately after right. the reinforcement or do you and and that depending upon when you say the new cycle is starting it changes what you're, how you would define that's it. That's right. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's why you got to be very precise. Yeah. In your reporting, you just can't say I use the fixed interval schedule. Right. In our lab, we were very, very precise about these issues, and we weren't allowed, even when we wrote things up, to just say VR, VI, FI, that type of thing. And the, we had to be much more precise in our descriptions. So where should we begin? with schedules? Well, you know, it's interesting that I've, I've given some thought to that topic. And, you know, in most of the time when I attend animal conferences, people are using continuous reinforcement. They, I, I, I'm, I was trying to recall if I ever saw an example, a purposeful example, anyhow, of, of using a schedule of reinforcement. And the, and there's a distinction between shaping and then maintenance of behavior. Yes. Whereas there have actually been some experiments in shaping with schedules of a type. Primarily, we would want to use a continuous reinforcement for shaping. And since most animal trainers are primarily interested in, in, in the conferences that I go to, shaping behavior, right. it makes perfectly sense why continuous reinforcement would be used. I remember 
way back when, you know, there was a lot of confusion over what continuous reinforcement really meant. And there mm-hmm. was a lot of back and forth confusion, I would say, between some of what Karen Pryor was talking about and what Bob Bailey was talking about. So Karen, early on, she would talk about twofers, mm-hmm. threefers. And there was a tremendous amount of confusion over what that meant. And she was talking about when you first teach a, an animal to touch a target, you get the, the animal to touch it once, and then you're going to go for twofers where they touch it twice, and then threefers where they touch it three times. And mm-hmm. and and people were just making a real muddle of that. And Bob was saying, oh, we just want a continuous reinforcement schedule. And people were getting really confused about that because what they were originally thinking was that a, a continuous reinforcement schedule means that you're always just reinforcing that first little iteration of a behavior. So they weren't putting it into the context of shaping. Right. Uh, and and that it took a while for the language to clarify and where we say, oh, you mean shaping. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in shaping, you want continuous. But once you've got the animal putting its nose where you want its nose, <laughs> and you want that to be maintained, you you could have it do it 20,000 times for one piece of food if you program it correctly. And the and that's been done. And so the the question is, under what conditions do you want that pattern? And what are you willing to put in to get there? And how important is it? So if you want something maintained where you're out and you're recalling your animal and you want that to occur without having to provide food each time, schedules reinforced is probably a good idea, right? You can build it out so that you don't have to give a reinforcer for, you know, the many, many times that it comes back to you. So the I think there's a lot to be said for the usefulness of reinforcement schedules, given the types of outcomes that you're, that you're after. Certainly in the the people who are interested in in competition would be very interested in that because you can't deliver reinforcers in the show ring. So you need to be able to maintain the behavior in other ways. Right. Well, they typically do it by having extended chains, right? So that, so that you're further and further away from the reinforcer, but the completion of one link in the chain sets the condition for doing the next one. And that in and of itself, can be a condition reinforcer for doing that pattern. And that sets the condition where I can do the next one. And then finally, at the end, you get your treat at the end of the whole thing. And the, so that's, a, that's, you know, there are, there are ways around those things too, but I thought maybe we could begin by maybe your listeners would like to know what the, what the fundamental re- reinforcers are, some of the research involved in part of it and the complexities involved. I mean, the, the reinforcement schedules, are not necessarily a simple matter, <laughs> right? And they're not necessarily, how can you say it, easy to implement for different types of outcomes that we've gotten in the laboratory. So for example, there are reinforcement schedules that are really good to use in certain types of discrimination training. And so that every response isn't reinforced and that maintains the behavior and so you're teaching the animal to respond in the absence of reinforcement 
to that stimulus in a regular basis while you're undergoing training. And it and so there's a variety of things and ways in which reinforcement schedules have been used to do some pretty complex training in the laboratory. Teaching, you know, Furster, and I believe it was Furster. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was him who taught chimps to, you know, engage in binary notation and, and mathematics <laughs> using binary notation, using different reinforcing the discrimination based on in the patterns, but using a a, a variable ratio schedule reinforcement. So the so it it was it's a I could be wrong on that. It's, it was done in the '60s, and I haven't read it for years, but I, I I seem to recall that. But regardless, there's a variety of things. So there are four basic schedules that people typically talk about. Two of them are interval schedules, and two of them are count schedules. And so interval schedules, as it sounds, are based on time. And so time since the last reinforcement, not time since the last response is the way it works. And the ratio schedules is the amount of behavior. And it's a count base. So we have an arrangement of timers and counters. <laughs> and so you can mix those up. So you can have timers and counters. All right. And so it is a, these arrangements of timers and counters is what gives us our schedules. So what is being timed? Well, as we've said, I you set a timer for, let's say, 30 seconds, and it starts counting down. 30, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25. You can set it such that once the timer starts, all responses that occur during the timer have no programmed outcome. There's no consequence for it. Okay. But once that timer times down to zero, that they that zero it locks. In other words, it stays at zero. Okay. Until the next response. When the next response occurs, that response then produces a reinforcer. What it usually produces is a stimulus that says go to the food magazine and eat. <laughs> and right. And then come back to your lever or your key to pick. Okay. But at that point, then the, and this is where we're talking about, is that the timer resets to start the time down. Now, does it, you can make it so it resets after the three seconds access to grain. Okay. Or on the peck. So that first three seconds of that timer interval is taken up by eating the grain. So the, but typically I would say we do it after the grain. And so it would time down again. So the animal walks back over, starts pecking here. There's no effect. So it's the first response after a particular interval of time. So, so I have a question about mm -hmm. that because I've not put pigeons into chambers and observed their behavior to really have a clear visual picture of what is going on. You know, I can certainly look at the cumulative record and see what is right. typically expected and so on. But in terms of what the bird is doing with the behavior that you're seeing during those 30 seconds. What do you see? Yeah, what would you see? Well, <laughs> well, what you typically see, if 
you've set your procedures up correctly, meaning that the response required by the bird has to be a little bit effortful. In other words, typically they peck on this lighted key and when they peck on the key, it depresses a micro switch that then counts it as a response. Okay. So you peck on the key, there's a micro switch. If you had a very light micro switch, such that there's almost no effort, that the bird could actually nibble on it a little bit and trip it up, you're going to get one pattern of behavior. If it's a little bit effort and you peck and you have to do a little bit of effort to close that micro switch, you're going to get a different pattern of behavior for the same schedule. And if it takes a lot of effort, what happens? Well, then you're going to get even a different pattern. So depending right. upon how big the hole is for the fruit fly, well, you will yes. get flies flying all over the place or going up or down. So this yeah, is another yeah. variable that you have to yeah. take into so account. In, in, in an experiment using these types of interval schedules, they're called fixed yeah. interval schedules. Back in 1958, Nate Azrin was running experiments on the effect of noise on schedules and reinforcement with humans. And he started his experiment with a button, and they had to press a button, the subjects in the experiment. And then they'd either have noise environment going from silent to noise or going from noise to silence. He ran both ways. But his problem was he wasn't getting the traditional scallops. In other words, usually after reinforcement, there's a pause, and then there's a run up to the reinforcement. We'll talk about that in a minute. Well, he wasn't getting that. So in the experiment, he says, so I tightened the button, <laughs> made it more difficult to press, and he got beautiful scallops. <clears throat> so in essence, he was smart enough to realize that it wasn't effortful enough. And so there has to be a certain amount of effort attached to the response requirement, you know, the response effort attached to get these scallops that you traditionally see. So typically after reinforcement, the animal doesn't start responding much at all. And again, it depends on the interval, but doesn't start responding much at all. Then it gradually starts responding, pecking, let's say, or pressing a lever or running on a running wheel, whatever it is. And then it'll, <laughs> turning in assignments, it'll, it'll go flat and they'll start building up. And then as it gets time, going down toward the time whereby the reinforcer is going to be made available, the rate picks up dramatically. And so you get these scallops. And then the reinforcer, pause, scallop, pause, and so on. And you get these types of characteristic scallop responding in what's called fixed interval schedules reinforcement. And you'll get this across species if you control, including humans, if you control for response effort. It used to be said, well, humans, you know, they they don't respond to schedules the same way pigeons do. Well, that's because you're not making it any effort. If I use a space bar and I just have a person pressing a space bar, you're not going to get much scalloping. Because, mm -hmm. you know, basically sitting drumming your fingers on something you do when you, you know, when you're just sitting around, that's what you do anyhow, right? And so putting that on a space bar, you're not going to get much of a difference. 
if you put someone on a exercise machine and put them on that schedule, you're going to get very few. <laughs> you're going to get as few as responses as possible to meet the requirement, the greater the effort. So the another way that Furster found that changes the, the scallop or the slope of the response, he would have a light that started at one end of the side of the chamber wall and where the key was mounted so the pigeon could easily see it. And it'd be a series of lights that would travel across left to right, let's say, on the wall. The, and that would indicate the time down for the schedule. And when it mm -hmm. reached the right side, the food was available. The pigeon just stand there and watch the lights. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Now it's time to pack. <laughs> so you can get <laughs> really long pauses. If you make it discriminative, the the timing time down, so the animal can see it. Right, so you know you get this feedback from the animal. So, so, so I wondered yeah. as well about superstitious behavior. Say it's it's thirty seconds, and it's the first response after that thirty second uh -huh. interval is going to get reinforced. Mm -hmm. But that first response doesn't have to occur right at the thirty seconds. It might occur right. second or two beyond that. And right. so there may be some other behavior that has occurred just before the peck. Does that get dragged along? Well, well, that's typically, but usually in these experiments, remember the rate is building up. Okay. And it's right before the thing. So what the animal does in a, in a particular session, they want to maximize the rate of reinforcement for that session. So they they start responding really rapidly before the timer times down. So as soon as the timer times down, they get the food. So seldom is there a pause unless the experimenter requires it. Okay. Which can happen. And the but seldom is there a pause on these. Now, what's interesting about this is that we can break these schedules, like this interval schedule, down in and measure what's called the inter-response times. That's the time between presses. Right. And so you press. Press, 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 press. So we see we go from long inner response times to very short inner response times. And of course, in the longer inner response times in particular, other behavior is going to be occurring. Right? Right. And even if it's just looking looking at your watch, I don't know. You know, the rat looks at his watch and then he presses or whatever, you know. the So the there will be the differences in these inner response times. Now, what's fascinating about these is that different environmental conditions affect the inner response times differently. So the greater the water deprivation, for example, in a deprived pigeon deprived of water, working for water as a reinforcer, or rat for that matter, it affects the inner response time for the same schedule. And so you'll see that the rate of responding will increase. Yeah. And as a result of this deprivation. Well, you saw a very similar effect when you gave a, an organism an amphetamine. You see a rate increase that looks like the same as you get in water deprivation, extended water deprivation. So there was a theory that someone, or a hypothesis, not a theory, Hypothesis someone rendered that maybe 
amphetamines work in the same brain areas and mechanisms resulted in thirst, you know, water deprivation. But when you go, when they went back and looked at the inner reinforcement times for water deprivation and the inner reinforcement times for amphetamine use, and they found out that even though the overall rate increased, the specific IRT classes were different. So one, and I don't remember which one, <laughs> resulted in the longer IRTs becoming shorter. In other words, there were fewer long IRTs in reinforcement times. In the other one, it found that the left the longer IRTs alone, but the middle ones to the fast ones got shorter. And so it showed that that by examining the inner reinforcement times on these interval schedules, you could distinguish between the effects of the amphetamine and the effects of water deprivation. Wow, fascinating. Uh, even though the overall rate of responding was the same. So this is one of the other reasons schedules were so important, is that you could, rather than just looking at overall rates of responding, based upon breaking these down into the characteristics of the schedule control, you could then look at the inner reinforcement time allocations and derive things about drug and other effects of the environment. That's how sensitive these things are. Right. And so they became used for behavioral pharmacology preparations, these schedules. And a variety of schedules then became useful in analyzing this. And I'll come back to that topic in a minute when, and, and talk about some, some of the drug research then is fundamentally based upon these schedules of reinforcement. The other type of schedule, of course, is counter schedules. Yeah. Here, it's just the fixed number of responses. Potentially, it could be variable, but in this case, a fixed number of responses. So I require responding 10 times, pecking a key 10 times or pressing a lever 10 times. On the 10th peck, that's when the light goes off and so on. So in this, the faster I get my 10 pecks out, the more food I get. Yeah. Yeah. So now there's not going to be much pause. I'm going to have a little pause after reinforcer called the post-reinforcement pause. But then I'm going to get back to work really bad. I'm pop, 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 and once I start, I just hammer it out, right? Yeah. Now, on both of these schedules, we can make it so they're not fixed. So that in the case of the timer, we can say, okay, I'm going to use a variable interval schedule, which means that my timer is going to be set on an average of, let's say, 30 seconds. But sometimes I'm going to, the, the light's going to go off and I'm going to complete the schedule requirement after two seconds. No. Sometimes it's after 60 seconds or longer. But the average is 30 seconds. Right. So when I say VI30, what that means is that the average time is 30 seconds. Right? So from the organism's point of view, it never knows when that's so you don't get the scalloping you get a nice steady rate but what's fascinating about the variable interval schedules since the timer is setting up the reinforcer if you take time off and don't respond that reinforcer is still set up and as soon as you respond you get it <laughs> so in essence it allows for some variability in response rate 
without affecting the overall reinforcement rate as much. Yeah. Right. On the racial schedules now, we can set it up similar logic. We we'll say a VR30. That means that sometimes two responses will be reinforced, sometimes 60 responses, let's say, have to be emitted before it's reinforced, but the average is 30 at a variable racial schedule. So now the animal just blasts away because it it never knows when it's going to get reinforced, yeah. never goes up. And a drop in rate means a drop in reinforcement rate, reinforcement density. So there's not much variability in responding in that preparation. So now you have a situation where you can get really focused, highly unvariable responding, or you can get a situation where the animal's nice steady rate, but certain things happen, they can do certain other things without costing them too much in terms of the reinforcement. going to stop here for today. So far, this is all pretty straightforward. Joe has described the four basic schedules that you would typically encounter. Fixed interval schedules and variable interval schedules are both time-based. Fixed ratio and variable ratio refer to the number of responses. We're about to get into some real head-spinning territory, so I'm going to stop here and let you digest what we've already covered. We started this episode with what may have seemed like entertaining ramblings, but I think they were very relevant. What we're learning is how sensitive to the environment behavior is. So here's one important takeaway. Instructions will never be a one-size-fits-all recipe. I can describe a basic lesson, and send you out to the barn to try it with your horse. But there will always be tweaks that you will need to make to adjust the lesson to your situation. Even when you think you are controlling all the variables so your targeting lesson will look just like mine, sometimes the holes in the maze are just a different size and the fruit flies go all over the place. In this conversation with Joe, you aren't going to hear this is how you teach your horse to pick up his feet for cleaning, or any other practical, real-world how-to instructions. This is not the function of this conversation. What Joe does is challenge us to examine the assumptions we make about why things work. And by doing so, we may discover better ways of teaching our horses. So next week, we're going to jump back into this discussion of schedules of reinforcement. Joe is going to take us on a wild roller coaster ride in which he's going to describe some of the many different combinations that you can create when you start to manipulate the schedules. Until then, train well and have fun with your horses. Music